Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 25 through 32. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him home, back, safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We all know this, but family dynamics are powerful. If you don't believe me, just ask the, the nearest therapist to you. Uh, so much of who we are, for better or for worse, is formed by our family of origin. Uh, here's a picture of my family of origin. and This is my favorite picture. I love to share it because this is the perfect display of my odd and beautiful family. And no, this picture was not staged. This was literally, the, the photographer was clearing out a roll. This is when we used to have rolls of film. He's clearing out a roll because he wanted to start it with a fresh one. He just took this randomly. And this is my family. Notice that no one has the same hair color. I'm not sure what, how that happened or what that means, but there you go. But I'm the youngest of two. That's me on the bottom, knowing what's going on. I knew he was about to take a picture. Everyone else was clueless. Um, I'm the youngest of two sons. Scott, my older brother, is three years older. And we could not be the more typical older sibling, firstborn, secondborn sibling. And we know this. Like, let's just own this for a little bit. Firstborns are really unique, right? Like, what's the typical, like, I'm just, who, who are all the firstborns out here in the community? Okay, so for all the firstborns, what are the typically, like, the given stereotypes given about you? Rule follower. Rule follower. Bossy. Bossy. The leader. Leader. <laughs> okay. Now, for all those who are second or beyond born, what, like, what do they leave out? Spoiled, controlling, (laughs) what bullies, that's right, no fun. I could go on, but I'm not. Okay, now for siblings who are the second sibling or beyond, what's what's your stereotype? Attractive, amen. (laughs) Smart and intelligent. Push the envelope. Easy going, misunderstood, get away with things. Yeah, I think, I think for the uh, second born, like, rules are kind of gray, right? Well, I'm not sure exactly what that was about. 
yeah. So we see how like this dynamic plays itself out with, uh, with our lives, and we also see how this dynamic plays itself out in this story. When we think about this story, even the way we talk about it, this is what parable? What's the title we give to this parable? The prodigal son, the one prodigal son. But as we've looked through this parable for these last uh, two weeks and then today, we've seen how this parable is about more than just a story about a lost son. This is a story about a family. So we've looked at it from the point of view of the parent. We looked at it last week from the point of view of the younger brother. And today we're going to look at it from the point of view of this elder brother who seems to display so many things that we have a default of thinking and feeling. Regardless if we're firstborn or secondborn, this parable is about that as well. It's teaching us about who God is and how God's grace is going to work. Before we jump into the story, though, the very key to understanding this story, the context for this story, comes in the very first couple verses of this chapter. And if you don't have these couple first verses, we miss the beauty and the, and, and the breadth of what this parable is really about. Jesus is now teaching in front of two different communities, two different groups that are rarely around each other. They're not found in the same place. So verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners all gathering around to hear Jesus. So they're all around Jesus. These tax collectors who are the most despicable people in the Jewish community, they sold out God's people for their own profit, and they helped Rome tax their Jewish brothers and sisters, their friends. And so they were despised. And so Jesus was visiting with them. They were with, with each other and as well with the sinners, which is like just the catch-all phrase, the category for those who are seen as outcast, deviants. But there are other people there too. Verse 2, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. They were there. They saw this, and they began to mutter. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. These Pharisees, I mean, they were the religious elite of their day. Uh, they were the ones who were the most admired and respected of the Jewish community. And I, I, I'm reminded of my friend, a Jewish scholar named Sandy Kress. He once pleaded with me, please be gentle with the Pharisees. Because they, they weren't intending to be wrong. They were not intending to be bad. What was driving the Pharisees was this true appreciation and love of God's law and commandments. They had such a respect for knowing and obeying God's law that they went not only to the letter of law, but they went beyond it just to make sure that they never broke a commandment. They were devoted to God. They had reverence for God's law. But the problem with the Pharisees were that they became so fixated on their moral righteousness like they became, their religion was following these laws to make sure that they were good and right. And so if they were devoted to going above and beyond the law with such devotion and admiration for, uh, for all the commandments, what would happen when you saw someone being flippant about God's commandments, breaking it without caring much? What would stir within you would probably be this anger this righteous anger even, that how could they be so flippant and careless about living incorrectly? And in the midst of this feeling, this experience, it, the Pharisees were known to be condemning. They had a sense of spiritual vanity. They cared about their image. 
And this ultimately led to pride. So it is in this context with these two different groups that Jesus begins to slip into a storytelling mode. He tells three different stories about three different things that were lost. And here in this story, he tells a story about two brothers and their father. As we heard last week, the younger brother asked for his father, went to his father and asked for his inheritance, which was in a completely unbelievable request. Pretty much he was saying, I, am, I don't want to wait for you to die. I'd rather have your things now. Can you give that to me? And it would be very normal in that day and age for this father to say no, to disown this child and to kick this child out. But instead, this father, he sells part of his property, sells part of his livestock, takes that money, which by the way would have been social, it would have been a known thing in the community. And he gives this inheritance and he puts it in the the second born's uh, pocket and he slips away pockets full while the older brother did what the older brother typically does, which all firstborns usually do, the right and respectful thing, right? Dutiful, moral, good, respectful. And I've wondered, like in this, in this story that, that Jesus is telling, it was we find this out that the, as the younger brother goes off and just squanders the father's inheritance, this older brother stayed home. And I wondered if there was ever any connection between these two brothers. What we find out later in this story is, and I've just, this is just speculation, this is just wondering if Jesus was adding this uh, into the story for us to think about it. Later on, it seemed like this older brother knew what the younger brother was doing, that he was, a, he was just wasting his money, not only in wild living, but with prostitutes. Was that just suspicion? Or I wonder if he caught wind what his brother was doing, if he knew that where his brother was and what he was using this money for. And I wonder if in hearing these words, if this would fuel that righteous indignation, this, this moral superiority that this older sibling would have had. I would never do that. I would never do that to my father. I would never do that to myself. One day this, this younger brother will come home and he will beg, he will beg for mercy. And in this moment, these two different feelings of righteousness and anger would be felt there as he imagined this younger sibling coming home and realizing everything that he lost. So this old brother in this story is out in the fields doing what he was doing most days when he heard the unfamiliar sound in the distance, the sound of a party taking place. So verse 26, so he called one of the servants and asked him, hey, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. I personally like to, in parables like this, I like to just imagine them, just to use my imagination to to just really picture what was happening in this scene. I like to imagine this older brother in the fields hearing this commotion, calling the servant over, hearing that the younger brother's home, and then looking up there, not seeing the younger brother do what he was expecting to do, which was crawling back, begging and pleading, but seeing his younger brother with the father's finest robe on, wearing the ring, celebrating and dancing with his stupid, goofy smile. As the community hoisted him up on their shoulders, he's a jolly good fellow, 
and the older brother going, you've got to be kidding me. We understand why this older brother was angry, right? Because we live in a world where people get what they deserve, and it is so infuriating in moments like this. It makes no sense. We get why he was angry. Why is he angry? It's not fair. And for older siblings, I just know this about you, you don't like it when things are not fair. So the older brother declares in verse 28, he became angry and refused to go into the party, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. This is not fair. I've been good. Not him. I deserve it. Not him. And he goes on, but when this son of yours, your son of yours, I'm not even related to him anymore. This son of yours has squandered all your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him? Dad, did you forget that he publicly shamed you? He embarrassed you and our name? That he, you had to sell your land to give this inheritance? You were pitied by everyone in our community. And now you're giving him more? When I think about the perspective of the older brother, so many problems stem from his perspective of how life should work. But the problem is it's an incorrect perspective. Of not only the situation, but it's also an incorrect perspective of who the father is. He had a fixed mindset where, where people get where they deserve. To be welcomed and to be embraced, you must be good. You see, even in the son's words, all these years, years I've been slaving for you. The reality is, is that he was not a slave to his father, but he was a slave to how he saw the world to exist. He was a slave to his own goodness, his own righteousness, and he was a slave to his moral achievement. And when your identity and your relationship with God becomes fixated on a scorecard, guess what? You become its slave. You become a slave to it. And too often in the church, we have not only become a slave to earning God's favor in our life, but then we have taught other people to do, this, to do the same. But the Father has a starkly different perspective. Son, you're, you're no one's slave. Verse 31, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. Which, by the way, after the younger brother got his share of the inheritance, guess what? Everything the father had will be his, including that robe and that calf and that ring. But the father's trying to, man, I want you to see something different. Son, I want you to see something different. The point is this, it's not, my love for you is not based on your goodness, but you are always with me, and everything I have isn't yours. In verse 32, he goes on to say, but we had to celebrate and be glad, because not 
son, but this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And just like that, the parable is over. It's done. It's almost like a cliffhanger. Like, we wouldn't like the end of this movie. It, the, the credits would scroll. you would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. What happened? Is he going in the party? Is he not? And the reality is, I think Jesus, in all the wisdom that Jesus displays in this parable, is saying, the choice is up to you. You want, it, you want in on this? You want in on the celebration? Would you go in on this party? Would you practice this forgiveness and grace? I think this parable is doing so many things, but what it's one thing I think it's not. It's not a parable of a lost son. It's a parable about these two children and their similarities, their, their incredible and surprising similarities that they have. Notice that the father has to go out for both sons. On the, they had to go outside for both sons. The younger brother on the road and the other brother in the fields. Both, seem, both of these sons seem to have this well-rehearsed script. The younger son on how he messed up and the older brother and how he deserved from his father. Both of these sons were more focused on the father's things than the father. The younger brother wanted his inheritance now, and the, the older brother didn't understand why one of the calves would be given over to this undeserving child. But neither of them saw what, what the father was saying is, my son, you are always with me. My greatest gift is not in my things, it's me, it's in this relationship. We are sharing life together. We're living together. You're always going to be with me. You'll always be my child. Both of these sons are lost. The younger son is lost, led away by his lust and his extravagant appetite, sent off by distant countries, but the older brother is just as lost. And he's lost in his own damnable goodness. It's his damnable goodness because it is a goodness driven in self, directed back to self. It's almost like you could hear this older brother say, not only does that other son of yours deserve wrath, but I deserve your blessing. You owe me. And anytime we have that posture towards God, that is not a goodness in which Jesus displays. That's a damnable kind of goodness. And for all their similarities, what this parable is showing is that there is one big difference, almost like a warning. The big difference is this. Only one son ends up in the party. Only one son ends up in the celebration. And guess what? The surprise to the Pharisees and the, and the tax collectors and the sinners is the one who ends up in the party of the father is the one who's morally bankrupt, who's filthy, who knows their depravity and knows how much they've screwed up, and they're the ones in the feast. And the self-righteous, the morally good brother is on the outside. This is what we get from this parable. And if we're honest, between these two sons, I, might, I, I, just, I know in my own life and I know as being a pastor, that the default mindset that most of us have of how God's kingdom works, how our relationship with God works, is most of us have the mindset of the older brother. Most of us do. It's the default way in which we think 
that we have to earn God's favor, his delight, his love, that when we screw up, we are far from God, we are not near God, we are far from his embrace, but when we are good, we are coming closer to God. We are within God's embrace there. It's almost like, and this is the most common description I've had of people when they talk about the end of life and heaven and hell, they think that their life is going to be on these two scales. Their goodness and their evil actions, their sin, their mistake, and God's going to just pile it on there and go, oh, sorry, didn't work out for you. Or, oh, good for you. You are welcome in my celebration. Yet the scandal of Jesus' gospel is this. There is no such thing as earning your way into God's love. It's almost as if blessed are those who come to Jesus empty-handed and know that they're empty-handed, for then they are willing and ready to receive all of God's love and grace and mercy that he reserves to pour out on the undeserving. It's almost like the more empty-handed you are, the safer you are in God's kingdom. And these Pharisees, man, they were bloated with their goodness and their righteousness. And these tax collectors and their sinners, they knew they had nothing to offer. But God's love rushes towards us. God's love does not wait till we have our act together. This is what this parable is trying to teach us. I think Jesus is trying to paint a, a picture for us is that God's love is not reserved for those who have cleaned themselves up, who have fixed themselves, who've figured out how to kick that addiction, fix that issue. God's love initiates. Out of all the verses in the Bible, my absolute favorite verse in the Bible is in this parable. It's this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I love that the father's eyes were already down the road. I almost imagine this father spending most of his days outside, and when he's outside, he has a tendency to look down the road going, maybe he's coming home today. Maybe it's today. Maybe today he'll wake up. Maybe today he'll remember his role in my family. Maybe today he'll remember who I am. Maybe today he'll remember his home. Maybe he'll come home today. And so when this day finally happened, when the father was already looking down the road and he saw the skeleton of the son that left and he was coming back home, the father was filled with compassion and he rushed. He rushed to go to his son. His love initiates, dismissed the script and the apology that the younger son wanted to share and embraced him, wrapped him in his arms, covered him, had a celebration. But this is important to know. This is not a parable about one son. God's love also initiates for the older brother too. The father didn't see the older brother out in the fields just like kicking the dirt and cussing his brother's name and go, well, it is loss. Let's go back to the party. No, it's the father's love initiated for that son too. Say, hey, what are you doing out here? No, no, no. I, I want you to be reconciled with your brother. I want you to know what it's like for my household, what we do, who we are. I want you to know that you are always with me and everything I have is yours. The father is initiating grace and mercy to both sons. 
And this is what Jesus is trying to paint for us. He's trying to paint this picture that Jesus is going to be the Savior for all those who are lost, either lost in wild living or lost in their own self-righteousness and pride. He is the Savior of the Pharisee, and he's the Savior of the sinner. That's what this story, I think, is trying to teach us, is that Jesus came to seek and to save all who are lost. Even before they realize that they are lost, Jesus is coming after them too. That's what Jesus is. That's who Jesus, who Jesus has been for me in my life. I've heard it said, I think it's so beautiful that Jesus, I wonder if Jesus told this story to get in our minds that maybe Jesus is the truer older brother. If you think about this story, what should the older brother have done to watch the pain of his father, seeing his pain of his father over and over again? What should this older brother should have done? Go to his father and say, Father, I I know you're heartbroken. I'm, I'm not sure, where, I'm not sure where, where our brother is, but why don't you send me? Send me. I'm going to go find him. I'm not going to come home until I, I'm not going to stop until I brought, brought, brought home your son. I brought home your child. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you and I. Jesus, with eyes of compassion, saw in the ways in which we were lost And unlike the older brother in this story, Jesus didn't see his self-righteousness as a means of of backing off from the world, but filled with compassion, he did not judge. He came into this world. He left heaven's comfort, and Jesus initiated grace for you and I. Though we weren't covered in mud like the younger brother in this, we have been covered with regret. We might be covered in shame. And Jesus comes to us and finds us and covers us. He was stripped naked on the cross so that we could be covered and restored. Jesus didn't wait for us to come to our senses. Jesus found us while we were still lost. Before we remembered who God was and God's generosity and God's love and mercy, God's commandments and calls on our life, Jesus found us while we were still in the arms of a lover, while we were still in our drunken stupor, before we hit rock bottom in a pig pen as we find in this story, Jesus found us. And Jesus also finds us while we're in fields of self-righteousness, despising a party of people who are undeserving. Jesus finds us when we're shut off in pride, and he reminds us that everything that the Father has is given for us. But more importantly, God is always with us. His love and mercy is always with us and for us. I've spent too much time in my life I have, uh, just the way I grew up, I've spent much, too much time in my life thinking that what Jesus came to do in this world is that he, Jesus came to change God's mind on me. I'm not sure if you felt the same way, that like God in his righteousness was just angry of my sin. And Jesus came to this world to die on the cross and say, hey, no, no, he's good. They're good. I got them now. You got to look through me so everything's okay, right, God? I'm going to change your mind, God. you got to love him now, because you love me. And I think more and more, especially as I read this parable this week, Jesus didn't come to change God's mindset on us. Jesus came to change our mindset on who God is. Um, that our God is full of love and compassion. He's looking down the road for us. He's wanting to find us. He's wanting to wake us up from whatever we're we're blind to to remind us that there is a love that is greater, a mercy that is greater, and it's set for you. 
so that when we come home to God and we come home with each other, we can know that there's a great celebration and it's not built on your performance, your moral scorecard, what you bring to the table. It's built solely on this. That Jesus knows and loves you inside and out. And the deepest part of who you are is you are God's beloved. Therefore, in Jesus, we can go, you always belong to me. And everything I have is yours. This is why we worship. This is why we gather and we celebrate. Because when all of us prodigals, both elder and younger brothers and sisters, we remember that we are loved and covered in Jesus We're provoked to sing. We're provoked to dance. We have this sacred feast of our communion as a foretaste of what to come. And not only that, but we leave this place and we go looking for our brothers and sisters who are lost. We tell them about there's there's a celebration. There's a God who's full of love. Can I show you the way home? This is the prodigal story. I hope and pray that it's been used for us to come to our senses, to see the extravagant love that God has for us, that we could join in the celebration of praise, praise for our life. Amen? Let's stand. Let's worship together.